You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And today I'm talking about tics, tic disorders and tics in general. Joining me is Dr. Pamela pojamovsky mcdonnell who's also from CHOP in the Division of Neurology. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So let's start with what a definition of a tick is. Of course. A tick is a sudden, rapid, recurrent, non-rhythmic motor movement or vocalization. Ticks are a type of movement disorder, and they are involuntary. Ticks can appear suddenly, without regularity, and are often exaggerated in intensity and can be very repetitive. Both motor and vocal ticks can be highly variable within and between individuals, and any possible movement or sound can be a tick. They tend to wax and wane in frequency. They also have two additional distinctive features. First, they can be preceded by an unpleasant sensory experience called the premonitory urge. Usually, the execution of a tick behavior provides temporary relief from the impeding premonitory urge. For example, a child may say his eyes hurt and then blink. Mm -hmm. Second, ticks can be voluntarily suppressed, even though I did just say they were involuntary, but only for brief periods of time. Most importantly, ticks are a benign movement disorder and they don't cause any issues to the brain or muscles. Occasionally, patients may experience pain due to the repetitive nature of their movements, but it's not because of the tick itself. Ticks can be classified into simple motor or vocal, and that is when they involve a specific body part or present with isolated vocalizations. Complex ticks refer to motor or vocal behaviors that appear patterned and are more complicated, such as gestures or complete words or even sentences. There are three other more rare tick phenomena, echo, paley, and copper phenomena. Echo phenomena denote the imitation of movements or sounds from the surrounding environment, which often occur in the absence of explicit awareness. Paleophenomena refer to the repetition of action or sounds that may not be present in the environment, and copper phenomena describe the occurrence of obscene gestures or vocalizations that occur without intent. Coprolalia, or the repetition of obscene words, has been reported to occur at some point in the lifetime of about 19% of males and 14 to 15% of females that are diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. Mm. So what's the epidemiology of tick disorders? Is there a certain type of patient who's more likely to have these? Isolated and transient ticks are relatively common in school-age children, ranging from 11 to 20%, with a male-to-female ratio between 2 to 1, and even some studies quote as high as 3.5 to 1 ratio, so mm. more boys than girls. In the office, I always tell my patients that up to 15 to 20% of all children will have some type of tick. That's more than I would have expected. Yeah, it's very, very common. And for most of these children, the ticks are mild. The exact incidence of Tourette syndrome is uncertain, but it is estimated to be around 1 to 10 in 1,000 children, so it's rare. Mm. Children with chronic tick disorders, even those with mild conditions, have a higher likelihood of other problems such as ADHD, disruptive behavior, and anxiety. Children with ticks alone, regardless of severity, 
appear to have only slightly greater risk for disability than children in the general population. So we do see some of these things more in children with tics that don't have Tourette syndrome, mm-hmm. but it's still a very mild increase. Patients with Tourette's have greater risk of ADHD, OCD, behavioral problems, depression, anxiety, and learning disabilities. And those are higher, particularly ADHD. So you've mentioned Tourette syndrome a few times already. So what are the diagnostic criteria for this versus other types of tics or tic disorders? Besides Tourette syndrome, there's other two type of diagnosable tic disorders. One is provisional tic disorder, which consists of motor tics, vocal tics, or both lasting less than one year. Persistent tic disorder is defined by the presence of motor or vocal tic, but not both lasting for more than a year. And the newest diagnosis for Tourette's disorder, so now we switch from Tourette's syndrome to Tourette's disorder in the DSM-5, is the following. You have to have both multiple motor and at least one vocal tic, and they must have been present at some time during the illness, though not necessarily concurrently. Mm -hmm. The tics may wax and wane in frequency, but they have to have persisted for more than one year since the first tic onset. So that's what I tell my patients. At least two motor tics, and one vocal tick that had been uh, concurrently occurring for at least one year before mm-hmm. we can even diagnose Tourette syndrome. Okay. And the onset has to be for the age 18 years, and there can't be due to another medical condition or direct physiologic effect of a substance, such as a drug, a general medical condition like Huntington's, mm-hmm. or any other medical reason. Right. So is there a genetic component to ticks? We think so. There's a lot of familial studies that show that 44% of patients with tics have some type of positive family history. There's some evidence from twin and family studies that suggest Tourette's syndrome is an inherited disorder. Some of these studies suggest autosomal dominant inheritance, meaning that you only need one copy of the defective gene to have the disease. But more recent studies suggest that the pattern of inheritance is much more complex. So some genes may have substantial effects, and then we also find that there are many genes with smaller effects and that also environmental factors can play a role in the development of Tourette's syndrome. And genetic studies also suggest that some forms of ADHD and OCD are also genetically related to Tourette's syndrome, but not some of the other neurobehavioral problems that people with Tourette's syndrome commonly have. Mm. So we might see ticks in families who have other things like ADHD and Absolutely. the child manifests with ticks, but maybe the parent doesn't. Exactly. So I want to talk about a few typical presentations of ticks that we see in primary care and learn more about when we should refer to you. So each spring, I see a few young children who come in with complaints of eye blinking. Often they're too young to tell me if their eyes are dry or itchy. And I often consider whether this is a tick or if the eye blinking is due to dry eye from seasonal allergies. So what features would make an allergy less likely and raise more concern for a tick? Often at a young age, ticks become a diagnosis of exclusion, but things that can help you uh, lean towards a tick can be the premonitory urge. So if they're telling you their eyes hurt or that they have a sensation before the blinking or if they can control it a little bit. But again, at the young age, most children don't feel that urge and they start closer to around 10 years old. Other things that can help is lack of response to a typical treatment, also how frequent this is occurring. So ticks may happen throughout the day without any specific trigger. So if they're outside and maybe even they're blinking less because they're playing sports and having a good Mm -hmm. time as opposed to blinking a lot while being nervous or eating dinner or not paying attention, 
Finally, some of the other associated symptoms sometimes can be helpful to rule in the diagnosis of an allergy. So if they're having postnasal drip or eczema or other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but often you do have to kind of go through all the medical diagnoses first. So it sounds like I'm doing okay by starting with treating it as an allergy and seeing what happens. Yeah, uh, but I wouldn't wait very long before considering the tick uh, if they're really not having any response at all. Right. Another scenario is after starting a child on a stimulant medication. The parents often report eye blinking or head twitch. Do stimulants unmask an underlying tick disorder or are these side effects of the medication? So meta-analysis of controlled trials do not support an association between new onset or worsening ticks and psychostimulant use. Ticks occurring during treatment of ADHD are more likely to be coincidental rather than caused by the psychostimulant itself. Rates of ticks when using a stimulant are 20% in children with pre-existing ticks and 6% in those who have ADHD without ticks. Right now in my office, I usually counsel all my patients that have ticks when I start a stimulant that the ticks may get worse, but I make it very clear that ticks are not caused by the medication and that treating the ADHD that may be affecting their schoolwork is much more important than making some of the ticks a little bit worse. I never counsel patients with ADHD that don't have pre-existing ticks that ticks can come out, but if they do come out when the medication starts, I give them the same talk where I say ADHD medication is not is what's giving you the ticks. So maybe just that we're noticing the ticks because oftentimes when we start a stimulant medication or any medication, we're watching a child closely for side effects. So maybe we're noticing ticks that were always there. And also there's an association between ADHD and ticks going both ways. So it is not strange that now that someone that has ADHD that is at higher risk for ticks now develops a tick and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. Another scenario is a school-age child who repeatedly rolls his head around in a circle throughout the day. He can stop doing it when his mom asks him to, but his mom thinks it's a tick and wants to know how long will that last? It's a great question. Unfortunately, we don't know. Most ticks go away within three months, but often they can last a year or more. Sometimes ticks worsen around uh, puberty and adolescence. But by the late teen years and early adulthood, most ticks will resolve. So this is what I tell my patients in the office. However, I can't give them an exact time. Uh, most ticks do resolve over time. Uh, if my patients do have Tourette's syndrome, that's when I usually say, I don't expect that all your ticks will resolve. But often by early adulthood, ticks, if they remain, they're still very mild at that point. But a simple motor tick, it sounds like, without other associated comorbidities or known Tourette's, should last only a few months. A few months to a year or more, but yeah, I wouldn't expect it to persist into adulthood. Right. We've talked about a few different types of motor tics so far, things like head rolling or eye blinking. What are some of the most common ways that kids present with a motor tic? What do they usually look like? So the most common motor tics are the simple motor tics. So eye blinking, quick eye deviation or abnormal eye movements to the side, head twitching. So head and sort of upper body tics are the most common mm -hmm. motor tics that you will see. Good. So thinking simple motor tic, more kind of head and upper body yes. and not less likely to be a hand or a foot. Yeah. Great. So we're talking a lot about motor tics, but there are also some other things that you mentioned. So the involuntary vocalizations or thoughts that people with Tourette's can have. So can you explain some of these a little bit? Yeah, so vocal tics can happen to anyone. It's not just part of Tourette's syndrome. And commonly they can include coughing, throat clearing, grunting, sniffing, barking, or hissing. 
Complex mm-hmm. vocal tics can include repeating words and phrases, animal sounds, calling out, yelling, or yelling of obscenities, which is, is a rare tick. I right. do see that to my patients all the time. Patients with Tourette's syndrome may have associated OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So maybe that's the thoughts you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. This disorder is characterized by persistent thoughts, which we call the obsession, that leads to a behavior being performed, a compulsion. But there's no specific thoughts that the a patient with Tourette's will have. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned uh, cough. And so sometimes we'll see kids who, after a viral illness or something, have a cough that lasts for a long time. And sometimes we call this habit cough. Is that a type of a tick? Yeah, I see these patients often in the office, and sometimes they've gone quite a large amount of testing, including respiratory pulmonary ENT evaluation. And so this one's also tough because nobody wants to miss asthma or an infection or some other type of medical diagnosis. But if it's truly not responding to the treatment you would expect and it's happening all the time, waxes and wane, it can be somewhat controlled voluntarily, then you do have to start thinking about cough. Mm -hmm. And also other things that might clue you in is, is the child having other tics? Is there some anxiety, uh, ADHD? Mm-hmm. And so if you're seeing all of those things after some medical testing that is not making sense with the medical picture, then absolutely you should be thinking of the cough as a, as a tick. Are ticks often brought on or exacerbated by periods of stress in a child's life? Yes, we know stress definitely makes ticks worse, or sometimes that's when they start. I think most ticks start whenever they start, but often people will notice it after something happens. So an illness, lack of sleep, stress in school, you know, public speaking, anything where the child is going to be nervous is going to make things worse. So when we examine a child with ticks in the office, should there be any abnormalities on their neuro exam other than the tick itself? This is a great question also. And no, there should not be any abnormalities. That's part of what I explain to parents when they come in with a child that's having a lot of ticks and they think they're going to get a lot of testing done. Uh, and I explain, you know, if the child has normal medical history and development, a normal neurologic exam, and the movement is very consistent with the tick, we don't do any more um, investigations. We don't do blood work. We don't look for strep. We don't look for a brain MRI or anything like or that. EEG. We don't do an EEG. Every once in a while, I will have certain eye movements that are similar to upsound seizures or some type of seizure in which case I will get an EEG. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's great if parents can video the movement, Mm -hmm. but most of the time I never do any further testing. And we always tell our patients to video things when they come see neurology. We love that. Yeah. As you mentioned, there's often not a treatment for ticks and they'll go away on their own, which is great. But sometimes ticks begin to interfere with social interaction, school performance, activities of daily living, or they cause discomfort to the patient. And in those cases, we may refer them for treatment. So what are the current treatment options for ticks? We have a few treatment options. They're not great. I usually tell patients that it might help their ticks, but it may not help them resolve completely. So I like to set expectations. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of options available. First-line medications include guanfacine, which the brand name is Tenex, clonidine, which is also similar to guanfacine and how it works, and then Topamax, which is also used commonly for seizures and migraines. Mm. A second line of therapies include Haldol, Pimicide, and Risperdal, which are a little bit stronger medications. Mm. 
But there's also therapy available. You don't have to go the medication route. Cognitive behavioral therapy or even better, CBIT, which stands for Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Tics, that specific therapy to help patients control their tics. Those two are also options. And if you come and get evaluated by neurology for your tics, we are happy to refer you for CBIT. We do have a provider at CHOP right now that is doing that. Great. So we see tics pretty frequently in primary care. So give us your top three take-home points that primary care pediatricians should know about tics. Yes, the top three points are, number one, tics are benign. There's no need to call attention to them. I know I just said video the tic so I can see it. But after you've done that, there's no reason to tell them to stop it when they're just sitting around at home. I ask parents to talk to teachers so that they don't call attention to tics mm-hmm. in the classroom. If there's disruption in the classroom, of course, now we're in a different uh, right. situation and we should talk about treatment. But otherwise, tics are benign. I have my patients repeat that to me before they leave the office. They are benign. They don't cause problems to their brain or their muscles or their nerves. Mm-hmm. Great. Number two, normal neurologic exam is expected with patients with tics. So if you find any abnormalities on the exam, please refer to neurology immediately and please put it in as an urgent request when you do it. Mm-hmm. And then finally, treatment is available. So please do refer to neurology if treatment is needed. Great. And so where can we find CHOP Neurology and how do we refer patients to you? And so tics are a very common condition, as I already said. Almost all of the neurologists at CHOP that see general neurology patients can see patients with tics. So you can call the general clinic at 215-590-1719 and request a new patient appointment. And you should find providers are almost all of the satellites as well that could see patients with tics. Great. And I know that you are always involved in research within the division. So tell us about what's going on that we need to know about. Uh, We do have a tick study going on right now that's part of an NIH consortium trying to unravel ticks and their genetics. The criteria to be part of the study is a new diagnosis of at least one year of ticks or any kind of Tourette syndrome diagnosis, but there can't be any family history of ticks in first-degree relatives. So parents or siblings cannot have ticks. It requires a one-time visit, and there's going to be a blood draw for a small blood draw for the patient and the parents, as well as questionnaires and booklets to take home. The family will be provided with a postage-paid envelope for them to return the questionnaires. To join or enroll a patient, you can contact Dr. Larry Brown at 215-590-1724. This is for research, so there's not going to be any specific results that are sent to the family. Mm -hmm. Great. Good for us to know about, though, if we have patients with ticks who want to get involved in research. And thank you so much for everything you do for our patients. At CHOP, we know that the neurologists take great care of our families, and we appreciate learning more about ticks from you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.